This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the southernmost point of Dorne to the lands of always winter, what is west of Westeros in the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk, and I'm Ken Napsok for another episode of our Game of Thrones rewatch, and we are into season four now, and the big stuff is coming. Hello, everybody, to those watching here on the YouTube channel, which is kind of a, a streamed recording of a man recording a podcast in a beanie today, uh, here in uh, the uh, Knapsack Files studios in beautiful Burbank, California. I am uh, uh, happy uh, to be here with you all, as always, but this is an interesting episode to dive into, and I'm uh, particularly excited about what is on the screen, but also I think we're going to discuss what wasn't on the screen, but in the script. This episode was written by George R. R. Martin, and it's the last one he wrote for the show before quietly... And then later on, not so quietly, uh, divorcing himself from the production of the show, which, again, he was certainly involved. I think he would be, but this was Benioff and Weiss's. This was HBO's, and he had uh, sold the show, involved with a lot of decisions, we know. But by this point, and definitely after this episode, uh, his involvement uh, was uh, a little uh, different. Uh, Maybe even you could describe it as strained at times, some of his public comments. And I'm going to, we're going to dive into that. I'm going to talk about that. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't have any hot takes years later now uh, that uh, that you all haven't heard before. But I think it's interesting when you kind of look at what uh, what this episode might have done and uh, whose side am I on? That's what you want to know. Whose side am I on? I guess, I think you're going to guess. Yeah, you know, HBO, Benioff and Weiss. That's whose side I'm on. Sorry, George. Maybe, George, you know, you invite me out to New Mexico for some chips and salsa. Maybe I'll change my mind. This episode, titled The Lion and the Rose, was originally uh, aired in April, April 13th, 2014. Uh, Wow. Uh, About uh, six days away from my my birthday there. I was not yet 40. Oh, my gosh. Oh, how long ago it was. Director was Alex uh, Graves. Like I said, writer of this episode, the credited writer, George R.R. Martin. Cinematographer was Annette Halmick. Uh, great job. In fact, uh, uh, D.B. Weiss calls both her and Alex Graves, uh, Alex Graves out in the in in uh, in a good way. Um, uh, usually calling out not a great thing, right? But uh, it puts a spotlight on them in the uh, bonus features for this episode, talking about just how hard it was to put together, shoot, and direct the purple wedding sequence. It was one of the bigger sequences in the show. So many principal actors there, big set. 
Uh, they're not shooting on something like the volume. It was live and practical. Um, they even they even uh, built a, a, a red keep. I'm kidding. They didn't build a red keep behind it, but it, uh, other than that, all practical. Of course. Uh, editor Katie Weiland uh, did a great job with this episode. Some award nominations came in for this episode. Five Emmy nominations. And George R. R. Martin got a uh, nomination for a WGA, Writers Guild of America, uh, uh, script uh, award there. I didn't win it, but a great episode. An absolutely great episode. And George is a great writer. I always want to make sure that I'm celebrating this world that he created. That's why we're still here. That's why we're looking forward to House of the Dragon. That's why I'm looking forward to any animated series or any other prequel series or any other sequel series. Anything they want to do in this world. I celebrate it often. Uh, it's an amazing world that George R. R. Martin created. I just think the relationship between him and the TV show, the books and the TV show, is unnecessarily strained at times, where it's just these two different ways to tell uh, a similar story with the same world. Uh, George is a great writer, and Blackwater, his season two episode, man, that's one of my favorite battles still in the show. And all the things he did, and all the changes he made to that script versus what he had in the books... Uh, are great changes and changes the show had to make for budget reasons. Um, that's one of the driving uh, factors in the in the battle being at night in the books versus uh, a longer uh, daytime battle, at least at the beginning of it, in the books. Um, his uh, The Bear, the Maiden, Fair, that's a great episode. Uh, he, he definitely knows what to do with his characters. So anything I'm about to say is not to cast doubt or undercut George's knowledge of his own property. Uh, I absolutely um, would stand by his knowledge. Again, that's why we're here. But this episode is uh, seems to be the catalyst for um, George R. R. Martin's, like you said, up, up top, sometimes subtle divorce from the show, other times not so subtle. In fact, uh, in the next episode, right, uh, we're going to get the first one of the first big controversial scenes uh, for Game of Thrones. Uh, that is uh, debated publicly, uh, which is the Jamie and Cersei um, sex scene at, at the foot of uh, Joffrey's body. And, and George, that was the first time I really remember George uh, not coming to an immediate defense of the show, but more going, that's not how I wrote it. First time I really remember. There might have been other cases of that. But that's the first time. So it's interesting that uh, the, the episode prece- preceding that is what we have here. This all comes from a uh, 2018 era uh, report article, I believe, from uh, Vanity Fair writer Joanna Robinson, great writer. Uh, she uh, dug into Martin's draft of the script, one of the drafts of the script, I should say, that's uh, uh, housed uh, in, uh, I think, WGA or maybe it's Library of Congress. That, you know, they, they put them there. You can, you can get them. Uh, and there's a lot of notes, production notes, uh, or not even production notes, but notes from Martin to the team before they go into production. And the differences between this script and the final script, uh, the production script, and what we see on the screen, is is noticeable. It's pretty big. Now, that's not uncommon. Uh, in fact, we've, as, as you dive into uh, Game of Thrones, you see there's a lot of, um, uh, even Bear and the Maiden, Maiden Fair, the big ending was uh, of that script was not from George. It was from Benioff and Weiss. Maybe you know, a lot of it was for, for the next episode. And that's just how you shoot these big um, big series, right? Something that is... Um, Something that is is over here uh, uh, from this episode is going to work better here. Let's slide it that way. Uh, all those kind of things. Uh, it's just the way of it. Way way it is. Um, but this one has a lot of differences, and I don't want to go into all the details of them. But they're wonderful things, and they're very book related. 
There is many different plot threads that are touched upon or set up by George R. R. Martin in his script. But by this point, the show knew it wasn't going to go in those directions. Now, that right there might be impetus for some people to say, aha, here's where the show really started getting, going wrong. Um, I understand that. I'm not here to argue that. I, I, I just always contend that the show was doing its own thing because it needed to do its own thing. Um, a lot of the things, there's some big things uh, there. Um, George was setting up a lot of stuff with Ramsey. Uh, there's production. There's some notes from uh, George to production going, you know, eventually you're going to have Ramsey's dogs versus uh, the Stark children's dire wolves. Uh, you're going to want to set that up here. The show doesn't deliver on that. The show does not follow that thread. Uh, George might in his books. We don't know. George hasn't gotten there yet. Um, it's just, uh, you know, an interesting little side note at this point in the show. Um, Joffrey has a, a lot more to do, or at least it's it's hinted strongly uh, when he gets his Valyrian still still uh, still sword, Widow's Whale, uh, from his uh, grandfather, and he makes a comment about being very familiar with, with Valyrian steel, which uh, in George's script, Tyrion perks up about. Um, going back to what's uh, you know going on with the uh, the dagger. Um, that is different where the show will eventually put that on Baelish more. And again, all this hasn't played out as uh, much uh, in George's book. So he had some things that he knew he wanted to get in there. Um, there's also uh, things with Roose Bolton really setting up that Ramsey is going to make uh, a Mary fake Arya. And that's enough. That that is not something, and that, that that's in the script and goes a bit along in in, in the uh, script process. But that's something the show um, takes off of um, a character that we've not yet really met. It, uh, uh, Jane Westerling, of course, um, right? Jane, so many chains. Um, but that's something that's that's not going to be dealt with in the show. Uh, they're going to go with Sansa because they don't want to introduce too many new characters. That's one of the thoughts, one of the processes uh, that, that the show has to go through. Uh, it's season four. We're already introducing a bunch of new characters. We just lost a bunch in season three. And I think that does speak a little bit to the nature of George and his convoluted plots. They're complicated. They're deliciously complicated, but sometimes they can get convoluted. He's, he's said as much. I write myself uh, where I need to go, and I think sometimes he writes himself in the corners. And there you go, why we're years, years on now getting with this book. I don't, use, I don't say that as any kind of criticism because I cannot wait to read what he says. I cannot wait to see the story in the books of Ramsey Bolden and how it might differ from the, from the show and how it might be a little bit bigger and bolder. I have no problem with him marrying a fake Arya. In fact, it's one of my favorite uh, reveals uh, in Dance of Dragons. I, I love that stuff. Uh, I just don't think it would have... Um, uh, I think you would have found uh, too many uh, plot threads, too many things dumped into the show. And not that the show... Um, made every right decision, but I think you'll find that George doesn't make every right decision in his own stories. Um, uh, that's just kind of where we're at. So I'm fascinated by the big what-ifs, some cool what-ifs that were put into this particular script for this episode, uh, where George kind of thought naturally, hey, you're going to go this way. But he wasn't, by, definitely by this point, wasn't involved in the long-term planning of the show. And we do know that uh, by season three, uh, some of the bigger um, show threads and, and, and show themes are in place, and they kind of know where they're building, and some will come along the way as the show adjusts. There's a big there's adjustments that have to be made. One example, uh, you know, uh, uh, Braun and Jamie are, are starting their kind of team-up, their kind of uh, offshoot friendship from Braun and Tyrion. Uh, this is the episode where Braun starts to train Jamie. That, that in the books, is, is Cyril and Payne. Uh, it makes sense for Jamie because Sir Ellen Payne can't talk and he wants to keep his training uh, with his left hand secret. 
Well, the show uh, can't do that at all because, uh, the, the, unfortunately, at this time, uh, Wilco Johnson, who is a great uh, punk musician, a great casting in the show, Sterling Payne, we hadn't seen, seen him for a bit, but he had come down with cancer at this point, which at the time, I believe, uh, was uh, was considered a terminal. Uh, and I'm, ty- I'm as I'm talking, I'm uh, typing right now. I do believe uh, Wilco, yeah, uh, still going strong, 74 years of age. Um, and check out his music. He's uh, he's got a, an interesting um, uh, past. A, a member of uh, Doctor Feelgood and the Blockheads band, and um, just a great uh, great random casting. A lot of musicians show up in Game of Thrones. In fact, uh, uh, Sugar Rose is uh, playing as the band at the wedding this episode. So that's a change the show had to make. Braun slides into that spot, and then, and then you can take Braun uh, different spots. Um, there's some things in this episode that George wanted to set up about Jamie going to the Riverlands, which in the books kind of follows this wedding, kind of follows the big events here. But uh, the show, um, and for better or worse, and for the most part, the Dorn stuff uh, is a worst-case scenario in the show. I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, they're going to send Jamie and Braun to Dorn. So... You got to make those changes. You got to just and fly. Things happen. Actors leave. Actors pass away. Uh, and uh, things you figure out, hey, it's not working for us. So um, that's not to. It's not an indictment of George's script. Not an indictment of George's books. It's not an indictment on the show. It's just what it is. But I think it's fascinating that this is the episode where uh, it uh, it started to uh, diverge uh, very very clearly. So, all right. That out of the way. I don't want to spend too much time on that. And that's going to, I'm sure, uh, you know, it invites, uh, invites more debates on, on uh, which version is better. But here's the thing, what I always say. Books, shows, there's not one better than the other. They're separate, and we get to enjoy both. And I hope you guys enjoy both. Enjoy both. Uh, I think that's uh, part of the fun of being a fan. It's, it's unlike, say, like, uh, you know, Star Wars, where I spent a lot of time in. You are building uh, this story. You're building the lore. You're building the canon. You, you're moving everything forward. Um, as you go, and you're not having to adapt books. Uh, you might you might be taking uh, characters from animated shows and make them live action and everything, but it's it's everything going forward. You, Marvel is, MCU is a different thing. They're taking 75 plus years of history of comics, and they're taking what they want out of it. This show is an adaptation of these books, and that right there means it's going to be different. But you guys have all heard me talk about it before, so I, I don't want to uh, live too much in that there. Let's actually get to this episode. Sorry for my ramble. Wanted to dive on here. Uh, you're listening to Casterly Talk. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll see in the bottom of the screen a uh, QR code. If you want to support the show, some of you are very nice uh, and want to support independent creators as we build Casterly Talk, uh, you can go support directly there using that QR code. Not currently using Streamlabs uh, because of some of the stuff that's been going on with Streamlabs there. Just want to uh, not use them until maybe some things are, are worked out and, and, and we're all comfortable that it's a company that we can use and support. Uh, I right now do not feel that's the case. So if you want to choose to support the show here on YouTube, you can do that. But if you're listening to the podcast, uh, spread the word, subscribe, rate, review, all those wonderful things to help build this as we race towards House of the Dragon. All right, what is a little bit of the legacy of this show, uh, this particular episode, other than the George R. R. Martin stuff? One of the things, this episode, of course, clearly known, clearly remembered, for the Purple Wedding, the death of Joffrey Baratheon. Oh, we've been waiting for this one since season one, all right? Episode one, season one, we've been wanting this kid to, kid to get it. Um, if you had any doubts in episode one of season one, by episode two of season one, you're ready for this kid to get it. 
And here he is. It's finally coming. And it was a bit of a surprise. Uh, I, I absolutely um, fall into that camp of, you know, you, we were so already just three seasons in because of uh, Ned Stark, the Battle of Blackwater Bay, and the Red Wedding. We we're already conditioned for uh, episode nine. Something big's going to happen. If Joffrey's going to go, that might be it. And I love that the show decided to do something different. Uh, we get in, not get out of the way, just we get in and it changes the dynamic of the show. It changes the focus of the show, puts a lot on Tyrion and what's going to happen with him, a lot on Oberyn and his quest, a lot on Cersei and Jamie and what this does to them and their search for their new identities. Um, and uh, Tywin, this man in power, absolutely the true power behind the cr- crown, not having uh, this uh, person with the crown. Now maybe he can find someone else that he can control more. There's a lot more there, a lot more going on with him as he tries to protect his family name. So that's what this episode is known for. But one of the, looking back at what I love, I love talking about the legacy of the show, of this, of these particular episodes, uh, and, and also what it meant then and what it means now, looking back, six years or, or later or so, um, is this uh, sp- the, the conversation of spoiler culture. We are uh, a year removed from the Red Wedding at this point, and, uh, and we talked about it when we talked uh, in more detail about the Red Wedding in, the, in that, that, that episode. This idea that uh, the Red Wedding was kept secret by those that knew. Not a lot of spoilers, not a lot of stories I've ever heard of people I know were spoiled by the Red Wedding by those around them that had read the books and knew what was coming. It just didn't happen a lot. In fact, the Red Wedding episode of Game of Thrones is um, absolutely remembered for being the episode where everyone filmed their friends. They didn't want to spoil them. They wanted to get the reaction. And then everyone everyone went viral with those reactions. Um, The Purple Wedding doesn't have a lot of... I don't remember a lot of cases of that being spoiled going into the episode. But it was, what I remember more than anything is this was one of the first times on kind of this global scale across all social media where the episode airs on that Sunday night time slot, depending where you are. It might be 6 p.m., it might be 9 p.m., wherever, whenever you get the feed back then in 2014. Because back then, I think for the most part, we're watching it on on your high, uh, your high cable, uh, you know, pay package. You're watching it on your Spectrums and your AT&Ts and all those kind of things. You're not watching it on an app yet. Uh, I think HBO Go or whatever might have been around by then, but not a lot of people watching it. You're still, I know I was on DirecTV at this point. Um, the episode airs and people immediately started spoiling what happened. And I remember friends of mine getting into big fights with other friends of theirs. I remember people changing their profile picture on whether it be Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, to the picture of Joffrey, all poisoned and choked and dying. And I remember that happening in the conversation. And that that's kind of malicious, the malicious side of it. And then there's a lot of people that just wanted to talk about it because, wow, we finally happened, which, again, I understand. And then they went to social media immediately uh, kind of spoil it. And this is one of those points because, uh, you know, we're – we're a year away from Force Awakens, and even though we're living in an MCU world and Nolan's Dark Knights, you know, those big IP properties that people are going to talk about and, and, and potentially spoil are already out there. And Game of Thrones is now, we're four seasons in here, or, or starting for our fourth season. Um, by the time Force Awakens comes back, by the time uh, Twitter starts to explode, by the time digital media and, and the punditry business, uh, what I'm doing now, really starts to explode by 2013, 2014, 2015, uh, that is where 
the the talk of of just spoiler decorum, uh, how how uh, to avoid doing that and how to stay offline, all those things that we are thinking just we still talk about to this day. Someone tweets a, a leaked set photo or something like that. You know, we're still talking about that, and we're still talking about hey, is it twenty four hours after a show airs, twenty four hours after a show drops? But hey. If the Book of Boba Fett pilot uh, drops at midnight on Disney Plus, does that mean you have to wait? Is that the time you start, or is it in the morning time when more people have a chance to see episodes? All those kind of debates. Um, I think this is one of those episodes that kind of started that. It really, uh, at least in my world, I, I remember the wars. I remember the Purple Wedding spoiler wars that happened. So I remember that perhaps even more than this episode, which is, um, again, one of the things that you look at Game of Thrones, uh, and, and it's impacted a lot of things, uh, how you do these big budget sword and sandal fantasy epic shows, uh, how you uh, protect um, the secrecy of your scripts. And I, I even remember Ryan Johnson um, talking to Benioff and Weiss about how do you keep Last Jedi secret and how, the, the tactics they use for some of the things um, and how the show learned uh, in season seven, when some there was some some those spoiler photos that went out about the Dragonstone stuff, and and how they could how they tried to protect it a little bit better in season eight, and and rumors about how they did that. I think that all you could trace a lot of that back to uh, people changing their profile picture to a dead Joffrey. Other than that, uh, what's the impact on uh, the story and impact on us as a viewer? For me, I, I you know try to uh, try to talk generally here, but I'll go to. Uh, personal thing there, Ram. This is one of the first times where I really found myself um, not over. I love, uh, I do love the stuff with Ramsey Bolton and Theon. I actually do. I'm, I'm a fan of the Greyjoys more than other people, of whatever reason it is. But this, um, the, the, just the kind of the gruesome violence, the glee and the violence uh, from Ramsey. I think I was a little over at this point. And it, and it continues. It continues for several more seasons, uh, several more seasons. And he's, you know, he's you're rooting for him to die. And it, it, it pays off quite well. But I think this this episode opening with the, with with the hunt, um, that was fun to see Miranda kind of step up and, and um, uh, be a little bit more prominent as a character. Uh, but uh, the hunt that goes on there uh, is uh, it's almost a little it's a little too much for me to take. Uh, I, I kind of. Uh, it just, uh, I don't know, it, it, it turns my stomach a little bit, uh, and uh, it, it, lent, uh, it, lent, uh, it lent itself to just being criticized a little bit about just uh, too celebratory of the violence. But you don't focus on it, which got me thinking about the other side of it, even though I, so I, you know, I found myself a little just over it. But also, it's interesting to see here in season four, episode two, uh, a precursor of what's going to happen in season five, and an episode that is uh, still to this day one of the worst reviewed, worst rated in Game of Thrones history. That's that unbowed, unbent, unbroken episode. And this is the Sansa Ramsey wedding and the rape on uh, the wedding night and the controversy that follows with that. And it's interesting because one of the big criticisms of that episode, and we'll dive into more when we get to it, is this is something terrible happening to Sansa but we mostly see it through Theon's perspective. Now, do you? I'm not talking about actually the literal, uh, you know, seeing what's going on between Ramsay and Sansa. I, I'm definitely fine with not seeing that. But the episode really, especially the the push in on the end on Theon here in season five, 
was one of the things that was criticized. It's like, it's like you're going to do this to this character, a character we generally are all love, love and are rooting for, you know? Any, any, any uh, negative feelings you had towards Sansa in season one are probably long gone by season five, and you don't want something horrible to happen to this character. But it, it can happen, and, and it happens in the story. Okay, fine, but now we don't even get to see the effect on her. We're not focusing on what's going on with Sansa in this episode. We're, instead, we're focusing on Theon, and that was one of the big kind of um, talking points around that debate, uh, and again, I say to to, to to anyone writing this stuff, uh, when you it, it just begs the question of uh, it's not it's not a lesson in what you're telling in your stories or what you're putting in your stories, but just how even you're going to tell them. Fine, you want to put this beat in the story uh, and just uh, you know secure Ramsay's place as, as a horrible human being, secure this um, trauma beat for Sansa, which is uh, something that does become key for her story uh, later on in her development later on. Um, how are you going to do that? Ask yourself why. Why do we even want to do this? Then how? And more than, hey, just we can. We can tell this part of the story because, uh, the, again, the criticisms are it, it's mostly told from Theon's point of view. And then, so you take that in season five and you put it up against this moment uh, where, uh, you know, Ramsey's dogs are, are hunting um, uh, the girl there one, uh, uh, and, and uh, there's some comedy with Miranda and everything. But it's gruesome. She's being mauled by the dogs, and we don't see it. She's been shot by an arrow. She's screaming. She's crying. It's horrible. And, and we're not, you know, we're not uh, unfamiliar with horrible things in Game of Thrones at this point. Uh, but they do the same thing. They push in on Theon. Theon. And it's, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's effective. And it's, it's even effective in season five for the character of Theon. I don't think you, you don't do that. But I think... It's one of the things I've said before where the show did, the show was made and created and developed and put out there in kind of a different time, not that long ago, but a different enough, a far enough back time in a different enough era that the expectations of audiences and uh, what they kind of want with the storytelling and, and, and the care they need in, in the storytelling um, starts to emerge a little bit stronger in 2014, 2015. And the show... Uh, struggle a little bit to keep up with that. So I think in 2014, they have this moment. It's not super criticized. If there's one or two people out there that say something, I missed it, but it doesn't become a trending topic. How horrible this was, this, the focus should have been on the girl here in the, in the dog mauling scene instead of something. You don't hear that because you don't, you're not invested in this character. You've seen her, what, once in, um, in uh, the, 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 the um, season three episode where her and Miranda seduce uh, seduce uh, Theon before his uh, uh, his body part is taken from Ramsay. Uh, that's all you see. You're not invested in her. So, all right, she's being killed. She's being mauled, mauled by the dogs. That's horrible. But, man, look at the effect on Theon. Uh, and then come again season five, they repeat that beat. But now it's with Sansa. And now it's now it's, now it's rape on a wedding night. Nah, people people weren't having that. And I think the show just didn't, um, didn't adjust with some of the things going on around it. Uh, uh, socially and just what we kind of um, uh, want uh, uh, out of our viewing experiences there. So just uh, just my own thoughts there on that and how I think this impacts uh, impacted the story and maybe didn't impact the audience, us, as much as it would a year later. Some more fun things to talk about, brands, visions. And we always love talking about foreshadowing, things with more meaning. Uh, brands, vision alone is uh, fantastic. And you get a lot of things in the past uh, Ned Stark in the Black Cells, uh, you get uh, uh, the crows that were around Sam when he killed the white, All uh, you get the, the girl from the pilot, the, 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 the white turning around, the young lady, like, 
great stuff. But come on, we we see uh, what we will eventually know as the the, the Night King, the show's version of uh, the Night King, and then uh, you get uh, the dragon flying over King's Landing. This is season four, and holy moly, that meant a lot then. It means everything now. It's also interesting. I love it. I suggest you all watch those extra features at the the end of the episodes on HBO Max, or maybe you have the uh, DVD or Blu-ray copies. And um, Benioff is the one talking about this vision in this particular moment. And there's a there's a there's more than a sly smile on his face. Uh, I think they kind of by this point know where they're going to get to with that. I'm not saying they had every little beat planned out for uh, season eight. Uh, um, was that episode five? Uh, the bells. They they. They don't, I don't, I'm not saying they have every beat planned out to that moment, but I think they know where they're going. And uh, there's there's a there's a, quite the smile uh, on uh, Benioff's face uh, when he's talking about this moment of vision. So that those visions, uh, I mean, everything we get. To, I love that we get to see kind of the version uh, of uh, Danny's vision of of um, the throne room, the Red Keep all destroyed, the snow, or maybe that's ash coming down. Always that great debate: is it snow? Is it ash? What do you want to see in that moment? Has winter come or the dragons? Uh, Bran gets to see that, and Bran has no idea what this means, and we don't really know all of this stuff by this point. Uh, makes, of course, think of season six when he returns, and now more visions returning and more things. And there was things in George's script, including uh, the Mad King kind of screaming and laughing uh, over Ned, uh, Ned's uh, father and brother being burned in front of him. A lot of those things, elements of them we'd see a little bit more uh, in season six. Uh, George had put some of those in here. So, again... Uh, differences, but um, the show kind of knew what they needed to do or wanted to do with that. So foreshadowing things with more meaning. They've got some big ones there. Uh, and I remember that that was one of the more tantalizing shots. And I do think I recall that being in the trailer for season four. Uh, you don't have to remind me, but I I, uh, I love seeing that dragon, the talk. And I wasn't on. I didn't have a Game of Thrones podcast by this point. I think by season five, uh, when I was on the Night is Dark podcast with uh, Maud Garrett, Tiffany Smith, uh, Michelle Boy joined us a little bit later on that season. Uh, that was the first time I regularly talked about Game of Thrones on a show. I think we mentioned it on uh, Schmoes Now or something like that. But I think I just was talking to anyone in the world I could about that dragon flying over King's Landing and what it could mean and if it was going to be in that season. Because going into season four, you know, Danny's kind of, working her way through Slaver's Bay pretty fast. Astapor, you and Kai were going to Marine, so it's like, all right, cool. Maybe but maybe this season ends with her on some ships heading to heading to uh, King's Landing and the Dragon gets there first. I, that was part of the fun speculation there. And speculation uh, is always take it with a grain of salt, but it's it's fun. And, and that, I remember this particular moment, that Dragon over King's Landing was also part of this episode's legacy as well. Uh Anytime I uh, see uh, Ramsey's dogs do bad things, I just think of Ramsey's future. That means a lot more watching that now. A lot of references. I talked about it last week. Season four seems to have a lot of um, foreshadowing and things with more meaning in the own, its own season. Where uh, you, you might look at other moments and be like, oh, that, that makes me think of season six. That makes me think of season eight. And, the, and, and when I talk about foreshadowing, as you guys know, it's not just... Not that there's not, not just a show telling you what it's going to deliver on. There's just things that have more meaning now. You look back and, and, and it, it means more. But season four just seems to have, like, get ready for the end of the season. We're kind of prepping you already if you're paying attention there. Uh, plus, you know, the, the mystery of, of who killed Joffrey is well on display. So, uh, you know, I, and I was not one. I remember just rewinding so many episodes and someone... Point, pointing out the necklace, Sansa's necklace. You got to look at the necklace, and that's where it started to, you know, uh, 
click in for me as, as clues of what was happening. But there's a lot of things. Uh, Braun talking to Jamie, talking about uh, Tywin uh, uh, and, and what Tyrion says. He says, uh, he tells me you shit gold just like your father uh, because we know what's going on with Tywin's uh, ending. Uh, that's um, an interesting uh, comment. Uh, even Elena, there's a great little scene with Elena and Tywin because they're always so good together in the, in the small amount of time we get to, uh, them together on the show. But Elena uh, Tyrell saying to Tywin, you ought to try and join something before you die. You might find it suits you. Uh, fun line. And again, referencing probably getting it set up for the fact that Tywin's going to die at the end of this season. But I love going back even a bit when Cersei, now with full knowledge of who Shay is, says to her father, hey, that's the one I was telling you about. And Tywin looks at Shay and uh, says, uh, you know, I want her brought to the Tower of the Hand before the wedding. I, I think, I, I, I still think Elena's line not just is not just referencing uh, Tywin's eventual death. I think there's something in Tywin that when she says try and join something before you die, I think he may have Shay already back at the Tower of the Hand, and is he gonna wipe her out, erase her, kill her, or is he having? Well, you know what, Tywin's got needs too. Let me see what I can do. Let me see how I can hurt Tywin, uh, hurt Tyrion even more. And does this comment from Elena uh, have meaning for Tywin in the sense of, I'm already doing it, I just can't tell you? Or has he thought, you know what, you're right, you're right. Maybe I will do something a little different. Maybe I won't just wipe her from existence. Maybe I'll make her mine, which will uh, give me a little pleasure before I die, because that's a ways away, and also hurt Tyrion even more. I just love seeing that line a little bit more and kind of diving into what it means there. Uh, there is, uh, so many things and, uh, going to a, uh, let's go to a little bit of, uh, our, uh, listener interactions here. Eric Monroe reaches out on, uh, Twitter and talks about, uh, loves, he loves the odd dinner between Stannis, uh, Solis and Melisandre. I do as well. The meats, uh, what does the Stannis say? The meats turned, uh, the way Solis tells the stories of the siege of Storm's End and she honestly, uh, Makes it all sound very romantic, perhaps showing the hidden romantic side to our boy Stannis. Uh, but Eric writes, I do love Stannis telling his wife. Uh, he'll never strike Shireen. Uh, showing he doesn't ke- does indeed care for her. Yeah, there's this whole, our, this is our big season four introduction to Stannis, and we get him uh, burning members of House Florent, uh, his uh, brother-in-law, and you get uh, Melisandre having that interaction with Shireen after this dinner, and you got Shireen just being really scared. Uh, traumatized and disgusted by the the burning of her family members and not seeing it but hearing it and just when you place that up against her eventual end it, it's very clear uh, to me in this moment that they're they're highlighting what Stannis did and uh, how Stannis says in this moment I will not hurt my daughter uh, but then we get the reaction from his daughter just being again absolutely traumatized by what she uh, uh, what happened and what she heard. Uh, and, and how that uh, does factor in absolutely into the fall of Stannis. Uh, my guy Stannis, he's making the mistakes, and the mistakes are a powerful lesson. We'll talk a little bit more about Stannis here in a, in a bit, but just want to talk about things with more meaning there. Um, yeah, and then we, we touched upon everything Brand sees, uh, but Donald Long wrote into the show. Donald, good to have you uh, back commenting. Donald's been uh, held up uh, for a little bit, uh, but a regular commenter around here. He reached on, out on Twitter. Just I wanted to highlight that Brand. Um, uh, the brand image and saying foreshadowing includes glimpses end of season uh, end of the whole season four uh and and as well as the finale of the show uh, the dragon flying over king's landing we come to know as drogon right destroyed throne room with snow but hey really mostly ash uh, plus so many other things including past and future events even our first uh, 
glimpse of the Night King. So, uh, Donald, uh, kind of agreeing with what I was saying up top about uh, those delicious visions of Bran. Other things that uh, uh, mean a little bit more um, within the episode, I, I again, Olena talking to Sansa about, uh, you know, so sorry for the death of Rob, to kill someone at a wedding, that's just horrible. And she's literally in the process of doing that herself. So uh, I remember watching, rewatching that first moment at the end of season four, kind of going back and watching all of season four and just everything Elena's saying in the scene means a lot more. And I love that stuff there. Um, final one thing there uh, for me, uh, Elena mentioning the Iron Bank to Tywin during that great little interaction they have. And now she kind of tells Tywin, no, you're, you're absolutely scared of the Iron Bank because you're not dumb. Uh, and then seeing what's, um, what's going to happen with the Iron Bank kind of showing back up and coming for the crown a little bit later in the show. So that's uh, some things. There's probably some other things uh, in the episode that have more meaning now. If it's for you, uh, let me know. Love to, um, love to hear your thoughts on things coming your way here. All right. Let's look at favorite moments, scenes, and lines here in episode two of season four, The Lion and the Rose. Um, the Jamie Braun training scene is one of my favorites. Again, we mentioned up top, uh, was, um, you know, not Sir Ellen Payne as it is in the books. Uh, and I think I, as much as I do love Wilco Johnson as Sir Ellen Payne, and that would have been interesting, and I was expecting that myself. By this, is, by this point, I had read ahead in the books and was uh this season four was my know-it-all season and we'll talk about that when we get to the mutineers that will come up again for me uh and i'd be curious where you all are with uh, the books at this point maybe if you like me decided f it i love this too much i'm going to read ahead um i had a lot of expectations about season four based on what i thought i knew based on what the books had told me and again i understand that I understand everyone out there but that's i just don't think that's the way to watch the show you have to see what the show is doing. And one of the things they're doing is forming this kind of friendship with Jamie and Braun, and they got this great training scene. I do love all the lines of Jamie concerned about anyone hearing them and uh, the whole kind of brand. Jerome Flint's just so funny. Uh, you know, remember, what's that night? Sir Laygood with the little the lightning bolts? Yeah, yeah, this is where I have uh, his wife. If they don't hear her, they won't hear us. Love that sequence. Locke has a great line. During uh, that kind of uh, creepy uh, scene with Theon and Roos, and Roos uh, 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 upset at uh, Ramsay, as he should be, uh, and then uh, Ramsay having Theon shave him. It's a, well, it's a beautiful scene, and that, uh, how Mick shot the hell out of that scene. Uh, I love it. It's, just, it's, always a little, it's always a little creepy, that Bolton stuff, right? Uh, but I love Locke, uh, Noah Taylor, when, when hearing about uh, you know, Jon Snow saying, who the F is Jon Snow? I just uh, love that four seasons in. We're living and breathing and dying uh, over Jon Snow in our fandom. And Locke's like, who the hell is that? Uh, if you like a Star Wars character going, Luke, I've never, Luke Skywalker? Who's, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I uh, I also, I, you know, enjoy a little bit of the Stannis. That, that, that bottom line for Stannis always kind of works for me, even even when it's wrong. But Davos seeing the the, the horror of the uh, the burning of the you know uh, of the folks there, the House Florent and everyone there uh, at Dragonstone, and, and kind of digging into Stannis on it, um, and talking about how, how loyal uh, you know um, Florent was, uh, and Stannis saying you know you know talking about uh, you know Davos is saying you know how many ships he brought you and how many men he brought you for your army, and Stannis saying good deal more than you. Just a reminder of, of of that bottom line for Stannis and how everything 
everything he feels is a worthy sacrifice to his goal, just what he feels his birthright is, what he feels he, he's here for, what Melisandre's telling him he's here for. Um, and followed up by Solis, uh, uh, just kind of lost in the, lost in the mushroom sauce. Uh, talking about uh, how great it was to watch her, her brother be burned. And uh, Davos saying, I'm sure they're more than grateful, my queen. Love a good uh, Davos line. Melisandre talking to Shireen, saying there's only one hell princess, the one we live in now. You know, y- you might not root for Melisandre all the time, but she might have a point there. I uh, love Bronn telling Tyrion, now go drink until it feels like you did the right thing. Love that. The wedding is full of so many great scenes. Um I can't. I didn't even. I could have just, just literally transcribed all the scenes here, uh, because that's what what's, what's at play in the wedding. Uh, Jamie and Loras, uh, Cersei and Brienne, all these characters interacting that we haven't at this point haven't seen interact in a long time or have never seen interact. Uh, it's a lot of fun, and the show does revel in that. They, Benioff and Weiss have talked about that. We love kind of seeing this person, this person. The the show's so spread out at times. To have some of these characters uh, together is, is always kind of fun. Um, I love uh, two characters that have always interacted, but Cersei and Pycelle. We don't get a lot of Pycelle. In fact, you don't get a lot of Pycelle after, like, season two, which uh, Julian Glover kind of talks about um, kind of almost getting bored with the show. It's like I'd show up, uh, I'd be, you know, destroyed by Cersei, and I wouldn't have much to say to her, and just felt my character wasn't going anywhere, and he wanted out of uh, the show after, uh, and they had to kind of convince him to come back for season six, I believe it was. Um, but I love the scene. I love Cersei just uh, giving Pycelle uh, the business here, the verbal business. I uh, love that. Uh, uh, I mentioned Elenia, uh, Elena and uh, Tywin, but I think the main event of this wedding uh, the the wedding all star game of uh, scenes is Tywin and Cersei versus Oberyn and Ilaria Sam. Uh, like I said, I could just literally write down every quote, but the insult, 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 and all these four uh, uh, titans of of the game sitting here just uh, cutting e- each other to the quick, uh, and everyone trying to keep uh, uh, keep face what's going on. It's just a great scene. Love that scene and. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's up there in the, in the pantheon of Game of Thrones scenes. Every time I'm doing a rewatch and I get to season four, yes, there's I want to get to Watchers on the Wall. I want to get to the Mountain of the Viper and the Red Viper. I I, I look forward to this scene. Uh, it's just everyone's amazing in that scene. I do love during the uh, death of uh, Joffrey as it's happening there. I do love the Elena just playing the part and when she yells out, uh, "Idiots, help your king!" Just. Just the best. And it's why, I, I got to tell you, uh, not really knowing at this point when I'm watching the show in April 2014, not really knowing that uh, she was the guilty party, she was maybe on my list of suspects, but I reason she wasn't on the top is I believed her in this moment. You know, who, who am I to doubt, Elena Tyrell? <laughs> uh, let's get into what we love discussing more than anything here on Casterly Talk is the themes and lessons of the show. Uh, what is this episode telling us about these characters? What is this telling about telling us about our own lives? And how does it to potentially factor into the big picture of HBO's Game of Thrones? And looking at this episode, uh, George put a lot into it, uh, wanted to put even more into it, so there's a lot at play. There's big plot points, and the plot points are important, absolutely. But what's beyond those plot points? One thing that... that, that uh, the big thing, I should say, that kept emerging was there was a lot of having to face your weaknesses and perhaps your past and a little bit of letting go and how is the best way to do that. And no one here is doing it well. The journey is still going for these characters. 
There's a lot with Jamie, the hand. Uh, you got the scene with Tyrion and Podrick where they're just trying to eat, and Jamie's not eating. Tyrion's very upset about pe- people not eating. Um, Jamie knocks over the wine. Um, he's downtrodden. He's back, but he, he does not have his fighting hand. Uh, he doesn't have his uh, father's support right now. He doesn't even really have Cersei's support. Who is he? Uh, is he is he still uh, you know the leader of the Kingsguard here? Is he still in charge? Because it doesn't seem like it. The previous episode, Mar- Marin Trant and Joffrey seem to have a lot to say about what Jamie's place in in the Kingsguard, uh, and and he's struggling with his own trauma and his hand eroding who he was and who he is now, and how best to move forward from that, and how best to be uh, Jamie Lannister in this new normal. He's struggling with. Uh, I think there's something in, 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 in all the gruesomeness surrounding the stuff with Theon and the torture and trauma that he's gone through and going through. When he learns of the death of Rob, they do a great job of seeing him reacting to that. And I, I kind of view it as his life fading away. And he's gone through this tremendous amount of trauma, but he has to face who he was in the sense of giving up the information. He can't even withhold it anymore. Rob's dead, and now he's going to tell them, uh, I, Brand- I did not kill Brandon Rickon, and now Jon Snow's up at the wall. This is new information to Roos. You see Roos react to that. That prompts the great line from Locke of, of who the F is Jon Snow, but Roos knows what that means, and Roos knows what it means to have, Bron, uh, to have a, a, a Brandon Rickon alive. Uh, and I think that's part of, of uh, Theon just struggling to um, really come to terms, and, and as he should be struggling with. Uh, what's happened to him? Uh, that's there. Um, uh, Stannis and his continued loss of self. I think there's uh, a lot of him trying to deal with what I think he, I think deep down is probably struggling with, and maybe this is me trying to defend my guy Stannis, but tr- struggling with a little bit of what's going on. Davos is there to tell him the truth. Davos in season three delivers hard truths to Stannis, but here he is. And and Solis is telling the story of, of the Siege of Storm's End, the, this big moment in Stannis's life where he did what he was told to do. He, he did his duty. That's so big with Stannis. And he did it with some degree of care and concern for his wife. And she talks about boiling, making book stew, making book soup out of the horse binding, the, the horse uh, glue binding of the books. And, and, uh, and Eric's right. It, it, it almost comes off as her uh, wistfully remembering this great romantic gesture uh, of the time he shot two seagulls and made fried seagull dinner for me. But it does say a lot about what Stannis was and how this weakness he now has, this driving desire, I won't even say passion, that's almost too positive, but this dark desire to to ascend to the throne simply because he's pretty damn sure it's his birthright. And he's so obsessed with him, Stannis is losing himself along the way. And here comes this scene to remind him and remind us of who he was. But then he struggles. Uh, he, he's, he's not necessarily on the surface struggling with what's going on. He's, yeah, whatever, burn those folks. I don't care if it will get me the throne, it'll get me the throne. But he puts in front of that, he puts Shireen in front of that. You will not strike my daughter. My, you will spare my daughter the rod. She's my daughter. And that's one final, it's all slipping away as, as Stannis struggles to face what is now perhaps a weakness uh, and, and face who he is now in uh, this new, new paradigm. And I, I think it's fascinating stuff. That's, this is, again, why I love Stannis so much. There's so much to dig in about what's going on with Stannis for me. Uh, Tyrion and Shay are also facing their weaknesses, struggling with what the past was and where they are now. And it's heartbreaking. This is the final big moment I think we'll really get between them until 
you know, the end. Um, I'm trying to remember if they interact at all from here on out. I can't remember. But until the end, this is kind of the last time you see them as we knew them um, in a way. Uh, and Braun's involvement with it even adds to the bittersweet because, you know, going to season one where they all kind of met and they're playing the game, uh, the truth of dare kind of game in the tent, um, you know, back to the simpler times there. Uh, but Tyrion needs to move forward. He loves Shay, clearly loves Shay, but he does not know how. He's in a different setting, different scenario. Santa's his wife, right or wrong. He's, you know, the arrangement might be right or wrong, uh, up for debate, but he knows he's got to do what's right by her. Um, and and Shay trying to hold on to what was. Uh, Shay now twice has turned down an offer to leave, turned down the offer to go to Pentos to start a new life. She cannot face that. She does not want to accept that. We know if she does that, her life is spared. We know this horrible ending that's coming for her that's uh, that, that's going to uh, destroy Tyrion. And it's something I don't think Shay uh, deserves. In the moment, she's going to stab him. Cool. But I'm talking about overall, I have a lot of sympathy, um, a lot of compassion for the character of, of Shay and what she went through and, and where she got to. And um, um, Tyrion throws that title in front of her, and it's so... It's so heartbreaking to see Tyrion, uh, the, the, the character who in season one, episode one, is telling Jon Snow, yeah, 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 I, I'm an imp, you're a bastard, wear it, wear it. Wear that as a shield around you and you can't be hurt. And here he is throwing that title, whore, you're a whore, and throwing it at Shay, throwing it back at her to hurt her, to take that shield away from her. It's so sad, it's heartbreaking. But it does come to this theme of this episode that is going here of just facing your weaknesses, facing what you've lost, and, and trying to move forward or failing to move forward. Um, it's a big thing in life. It's a big thing uh, for all of us. This change is hard. Uh, heartbreak is hard. Uh, facing trauma is 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 difficult and one of the hardest things to do, and I would never suggest it's easy or that any of these characters, uh, anything they're going through is easy. Uh, but I'm fascinated to watch these scenes in this episode. This episode so remember for the Purple Wedding, so remember for the death of Joffrey, but all, all these characters dealing with these, these, these wounds of the soul and how they failed to go forward. If Shay had been able to accept what was now, what was present, um, she would have started a new life. Without that title over her, it would have been something completely different. Um, not saying it's easy, but she struggled with it. And uh, look where that goes. Tyrion's struggling with it. Maybe I, I do believe there's probably a better way for Tyrion to have handled this, a better way for him to be more honest with what um, needed to happen uh, with this breakup and this. Uh, both of them moving on in life. Uh, he fails at that. Uh, Jamie's continuing to learn. And another one is is Cersei and her loss of status and power. Cersei, we know, is so afraid of being alone. That's a big driving factor. And uh, in season five, we'll get the vision that basically tells her, you're going to be alone. Everyone around you is going to die. There's ain't nothing you can do. And she tries to fill that hole in her soul with the kingdom. Uh, and so many, so much more uh, wonderful stuff coming with uh, with Cersei. Uh, just in terms of character development and struggles and pain. This is why I, we absolutely root for Cersei at times. Absolutely do, even though it was, sometimes we feel we shouldn't. This episode, it is the loss of her son that she has said several times that even Joffrey, my children was the only thing. It's the only comfort I had. He, she's tell, she talks about that with Tyrion, with Sansa. You want to you do, do right by Sansa? You need to give her a child because Sansa's got a horrible life ahead of her and that child's going to be the only thing. It's the only thing I had, even Joffrey. Well, now Joffrey is the first to actually go. Marcella, of course, we know is in Dorne. Um, uh, and, and we got Tommen, and, and, and 
we, we know and probably by this point suspect that uh, they're going to eventually be in danger as well. But, but, but Joffrey, the, the worst of the worst, is the first to go, and this is a, 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 this is a fear point. This is a, a weakness point for Cersei, uh, and it all ties into, uh, I think, her loss of status and power. That's why when Oberyn um, says to her so plainly, hey, it's the Queen Regent. Oh, I, I should say former Queen Regent. I guess I'll call you a lady now. Uh, it's these barbs, and they're great barbs, and they're funny barbs. But it is—it's every fear of Cersei uh, starting to to emerge, and and how uh, now she this is this is her great one of her greatest fears uh, come to pass. And you see the uh, the episode, and, and Lena Headey was uh, nominated for this episode. Uh, such a great job. The eyes tell a story. She's saying goodbye to her son, and then her face goes goes hard, and. Um, Tyrion becomes a suspect. Uh, there's a lot of uh, cases, um, a lot of a lot of suspects at the wedding. They do that when they when they have the the War of the Five Kings reenacted, um, and uh, it's it's horrible. It's offensive, um, and everyone's disgusted. You see, everyone everyone ha- it's it's a who who shot Mister Burns or who shot Jr. Moment. Everyone's got a reason to go after Joffrey. Uh, the wedding does a great job of of putting that out there. Uh, but the focus clearly is on Tyrion. There's even that line he says um, uh, when he he wants Podrick to pay the the little people some extra some gold for being forced to do this horrible entertainment, and he says we'll have to find another way to thank the king. I mean, dun dun dun. Might as well have played during that moment. But uh, <coughs> I love uh, I love how you can relate relate all this. This is big plot point. The death of Joffrey is this giant plot point that's going to throw everything everything askew, everything awry. Uh, but focus on the characters and what it does to the characters. This is Jamie's fear. I, I, the only thing, I, I, I don't have my hand. I, I don't have my father's support. I don't have my sister, uh, her support, uh, and, and maybe her love anymore. But I, I guess all I can do is be a King's Guardsman, be the head of the King's Guardsman, and protect Jamie, pr- uh, protect my son, protect Joffrey, protect the king. That great fear now comes to pass that he can't do that. Cersei, the loss of status, loss of power, the loss of the of, of the little baby boy that gave her that peace and comfort during the darkest times in her life. That is gone. That is lost. And how are these characters going to deal with that? There's now this vacuum of power. There's these big plot points. Tywin's going to make sure Tommen's on the throne and he can control them. We got some great stuff with Tommen coming uh, and, and Tywin coming in the next episode. I love their conversation about what makes a great king. Um... We got the mystery. We see Sir Dantos there telling Sansa, you want to live? Come with me. Boom. Big things afoot. But I love how it affects the characters and what that can uh, can do for us as an audience and how you engage with what this is uh, telling you. How do you deal with your loss? How do you deal with change? How do you deal with your weaknesses uh, and fears being uh, uh, shoved into your face? Uh, It's a question for all of us there, and this episode uh, asks us about it. So kudos. Oh, I just tipped a cap that wasn't there. Uh, (laughs) It's a space work cap. Kudos to George R. R. Martin for putting all that in the episode. He didn't get everything he wanted in this episode. He really wanted to set up some big plot points and things that he's going to be dealing with this in his book, but he didn't uh, didn't do it here, didn't get to do it here in this episode. But I'll tell you what, it's a damn fine episode, a memorable one indeed. So that's some of my thoughts on uh, this episode. We want to shout out. We always like shout out sp- uh, specific stars of the episodes. I, I-, I got to shout out Jack Leeson. The next episode is technically his swan song. Technically, the last time we'll see him on the show, but 
This was the episode where they needed to really um, reestablish Joffrey in a way as a villain, uh, which is, I think, something they need to do. He's such the big villain, season one, season two. You're so hate- hating him. You're so rooting against him. Season three, he's there and some horrible. he does some horrible things, stuff to Roz, all the stuff. But Ramsey has emerged. Bruce Bolton really started to emerge. You're not happy with Walter Frey. Uh, like This episode, uh, the Red Wedding and the follow-up really kind of establishes Roos as a power and Roos as a villain. But you, by this time, you really start to see what Roos wants, really start to see what he's doing, and really start to see when he has the power over Ramsey, even in, this, in, this, in the scenes in this episode. To me, it elevates him here. So there's all these kind of new players, but Joffrey was the OG villain, the OG one we wanted to see die, and they did a great job in this episode of setting that up, and Jack Gleason, once again, doing an amazing job playing this despicable character. Uh, and uh, a, a, sw- a good swan song. He went out. Uh, I was always happy with the death. I know a lot of people wanted him to suffer even more. I think he suffered. I think he suffered. Uh, and he's gone. And he's gone. And how will this world deal with it? We'll be uh, dealing with that as we move forward here on our Game of Thrones rewatch. Thank you so much for supporting and listening to Casterly Talk, uh, diving into the themes with me, and uh, looking back on the show, perhaps in a, in a little different way than others. Uh, you can listen to the podcast wherever fine podcasts are found. And don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel as we build that channel in preparation for House of the Dragon, but I'm having a lot of fun putting the rewatch episodes up there. Again, if you're watching and want to support the channel, uh, you can uh, hit that uh, QR code link. We'll take you to a donation page as well, but not necessary here. Uh, just know some of you are, are generous enough to, to want to do that from time to time. Maybe uh, uh, I'll uh, this Davos after the war beard. Maybe we'll, uh, I'll uh, I'll raise some funds by shaving it too. I'm kidding. All right, uh, that is it. See you next week here on Casterly Talk, my friends. Bye.